Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So the first topic we're going to talk about today is Grubhub. We spoke about this on on the last episode, Grubhub being acquired by uh, Just Eat, uh, the kind of European equivalent of Grubhub. And um, there's a, a pretty good interview with uh, the CEO Matt Maloney on CNBC, and there's one little excerpt here that I that I wanted to play about this. And you know, is is Grub really kind of overvalued here or not? By doubling down on a winning strategy, I feel like it's only going to be positive for our shareholders, and then uh, ultimately the Just Eat takeaway shareholders. But I think you still need to to take a step back and think about we are the most valuable asset in the world because we are the only profitable player in the world's largest food delivery and takeout market. And so if you think about the ramifications five years down the road, the U.S. is a must-win market for anyone who claims to be the global leader. And so allowing uh, a U.S. competitor, specifically Uber, to rationalize the U.S. market and generate hundreds of millions of dollars in profit, then that would be transported to other countries and specifically European capitals. That was an unacceptable outcome for any of the global leaders uh, out there. That was the whole reason for the deal. In about 20 seconds, wrapped up right there. Basically, Just Eat was looking at themselves. They're not the number one player in Europe. And they said, oh man, Uber and Grubhub are basically tied for second and third in the US and DoorDash is number one, right? So DoorDash is about double the volume of either um, Uber Eats or Grubhub in the United States. So an Uber-Grubhub deal makes them have parity with DoorDash. So basically what Matt, this is the CEO of Grubhub, is saying is if Uber buys Grub, they have parity with DoorDash. They now get a very profitable food delivery business in the United States. They're going to take those profits and drive them into competing more aggressively in Europe. And that was Just Eat's basically rationale to say, here's why we need to overpay for Grubhub. Uh, the rumor is that Uber was looking at roughly a, a mid $6 billion valuation for Grubhub. They got about $7.3 billion valuation from Just Eat. Um, the reason why Just Eat said we have to pay more is because they recognize that if they didn't cut Uber off at the head here with the with 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 preventing them from taking over Grubhub to prevent Uber from getting a wildly profitable food delivery business in the United States that it would help just eat protect the business that they had in Europe. Will that strategy work? Only time will tell. There isn't room for three players as we're seeing in in any market, right? We saw Uber rewind the clock about now 18 months ago where Dara, the CEO of Uber said, if we're not number one or number two, we're leaving. And we've seen them exit a lot of markets where they are third. It's platform 101. You're either one or two or last. And so uh, Just Eat is saying, okay, well, we're not going to let you get to a number one or number two position in the United States. We're going to keep this battle going. I think Just Eat kind of viewed it as the beginning of the end for them, where you have uh, Delivery Hero is the dominant European food delivery player. I On the last episode, I showed the CEO of Delivery Hero casting some shade uh, on this Grubhub Just Eat deal. Um, and so you have Delivery Hero, the big player in Europe, Just Eat, the smaller player. 
not and then obviously Uber Eats also in Europe. So Justy didn't want the pressure to come to Europe from Uber uh, to try and do something similar. Now the irony of this whole thing could just be that Uber grinds down Grubhub and Just Eat, makes them lose more and more money, can sustain the losses, uh, and and in Uber Eats longer than Grubhub and Just Eat can, um, and then just buys a cheaper Grubhub Just Eat business and 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 gets to the same position, a number one, number two position in both the U.S. and Europe, in one fell swoop. So. I actually, you know, if I was a betting man, that would actually be where my money is at. Uh, Matt Maloney on this interview continues to say that Grubhub is the most profitable or most valuable uh, food delivery business in the world. And the reason why he's saying that is because he says they're a profitable business. On the last show, I, I showed their earnings. The past couple quarters, they're not profitable. They're losing money. You rewind the clock a year ago to that quarter. Yeah, they were profitable. But now to the current state of affairs where there's heavy competition from Uber, from DoorDash in the United States, where Grubhub has had to change its business model to stay competitive in the United States and basically do away with their profits. You know, he still talks about themselves as a profitable company, but I think the current state of affairs is they're no longer a profitable company. They have had to do away with their profits to stay competitive, to retain market share, at the presence of these more aggressive competitors, Uber Eats and DoorDash, and and to a lesser degree, Postmates. So I would disagree that that they are a profitable business. I don't think that's an accurate representation anymore. And secondly, again, I don't see how this changes the status quo and changes the gives he says that Grubhub is now a more financially stable business. Uh, but there really are no accretive synergies outside of now you just joined with this European company that's kind of in a similar position as Grubhub in the United States. So, and then I feel like the outcome might be the same. It's just punted down the road, you know, the can's punted down the road maybe a couple of years here where Uber just gobbles up this collective entity of Grubhub and Just Eat. Uh, we'll see if that comes true or not. So, uh, we spoke about maybe two episodes ago how Facebook. It chose the right decision versus Twitter choosing the wrong decision, which was to add a fourth mechanism of content uh, regulation. And that fourth mechanism was modifying the president's tweets. Um, and now they're modifying other people's tweets as well, because once you kind of cross that threshold of, well, we're going to modify these tweets, it's a very slippery slope about which tweets should be modified, right? Versus it's, it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit more black and white. You know, this is very inappropriate content. We're taking it down or we're, we're suspending or banning this user from, from being on the platform. Now, this is a much grayer area, much harder to figure out that, that appropriate balance. And Twitter's already having problems figuring out what that right choice is. Facebook decided not to go down this path and took the more open stance, which is the correct stance for a platform monopoly which both of these companies are. We've covered that many times on the show. And now there's this article saying that Facebook's refusal to crack down on these posts uh, could move ad budgets elsewhere. Cancel culture is essentially what the, this group is getting at. It was only a matter of time before advertisers started pulling dollars due to both moral and performance concerns that come with, uh, Facebook's, with Facebook advertising. Problem is, this guy that has an ad agency 
But he's not actually saying that any advertisers have pulled money from Facebook. He's just saying that they have seen they have seen clients looking at operative media. This group has noticed more of its clients looking into key performance indicators over the last two weeks, indicating that many of them are looking at alternatives to Facebook. I'd say that's a pretty big leap. <laughs> it's just saying I'm looking more at my KPIs. There are a lot of advertisers that pause their advertising uh, for the Blackout Tuesday, which occurred last week. So you're naturally seeing a lot of advertising trickle back last week for other reasons beyond just a singular focus on Facebook. The irony here is, you know, cancel culture doesn't work on a platform monopoly like Facebook. I don't think you're going to see. Uh, advertisers pull back because of Facebook's decision, it's literally not possible for them to pull back because if they pull back, there's a vacuum and that vacuum is going to get filled by their competitor. It's one thing to be able to have cancel culture on linear companies. It's a whole other ballgame to try and have cancel culture on a tech monopoly. Um, It's just not in the cards. It's not going to happen. And this article is taking a bunch of quotes from different ad agency executives, but all the ad agency executives are just saying, well, we think that people might do this, but they actually don't have any concrete examples of their clients pulling back any spend. And why is that? Because you have to use Facebook to get out in front of your customers. It's a monopoly. That's the whole point of this, right? That's the whole point of why Facebook as a monopoly should be more open and should allow more free speech, um, even if that means that the ecosystem is uh, not as pleasurable as of of an experience. And and that is kind of the rub to being a monopoly is you need to embrace more divisive speech for the sake of not silencing uh, your creators and and violating the First Amendment. So Facebook is going down the right path. The employees that are quitting Facebook. It's a, you know it's unfortunate, but but ultimately I, I I think they're missing the whole point of what Facebook is about, which is about connecting people. And I give Zuckerberg credit for staying true to that. Um, now, in not so good news, on the other side of the aisle here is Amazon. So before I get into the Amazon regulation dynamic, there's this one interesting point here where we're seeing the Amazon business being able to use uh, the pandemic as an accelerant for their business. Uh, so they're basically waiving all fees on Amazon business for sellers that are putting, you know, safety products and PPE, distributing that through Amazon business. And so there's an interesting stat here that they have supplied more than half of the top 100 hospital systems in the country and 44 of the 50 state governments through Amazon business, right? We've talked on the show about how Amazon has a huge focus on healthcare. This was pre-pandemic. We've featured them in our Amazon business white paper where we show how many products are listed on Amazon business in the medical supply category, how many sellers are in that medical supply category. It's one of their top five categories on Amazon business. Um, this is a huge focal area and, and, and they have absolutely, Amazon business has ab- absolutely been able to use their massive supply, that network of, of producers to get into additional consumers, like these hot, massive hospital systems, which usually have very long, arduous contract purchasing processes. But hey, I need these supplies very quickly. What's the business solution that can adapt on the fly to the supply chain problems? Oh, this thing called a marketplace. 
and and now we've clearly seen that and here's an interesting stat showing um i think how they've been able to get a lot more penetration with these very large customers which are very which are usually very hard to penetrate and the not so good news for amazon finally there is a legitimate case being presented by one of the uh government regulators and um it's the eu i got to give the eu credit here basically this article is saying that in the next couple of weeks there should be a a uh, complaint filed by the eu uh for an antitrust suit tar- over amazon's treatment of third party sellers we've been talking about this Ever since the show came out almost a year ago now, our, our anniversary is in uh, July. So this has always been the case where producers, we had Tim O'Reilly on the show a few weeks ago. This is literally what we were talking about with Tim, that platform monopolies, they take advantage of suppliers first. Don't even worry about the consumers. That is how this case could uh, unravel is if the EU tries to overcomplicate it and say, well, you were taking advantage of suppliers, which then adversely affected the consumer. That will make this case very easy for Amazon to wiggle their way out of. If the EU just keeps this focus, singularly focused, that Amazon's a monopoly, that they take advantage of their suppliers, their third-party sellers, and by doing so, they are taking advantage of their customer. And that sellers are a customer. Uh, the case is one. It's very easy to prove that Amazon's taking advantage of sellers. Amazon is a vertically integrated business where they have their own product lines that are directly c- competing with third-party sellers uh, to launch their own products, and they're directly competing with third-party sellers to go from a three P relationship to a one P relationship, where where they are sourcing the product directly from the manufacturer and then driving down the margin of the third-party seller. We've spoken about that on the show at Infinitum and, and talked about many examples about Amazon product managers cutting out third-party sellers, getting purchase orders from the third-party seller, going around the third-party seller to source the product directly from the manufacturer. Can't do that kind of stuff, these games. And, and the Wall Street Journal had an article uh, maybe a couple months ago talking about something we spoke about on the show last fall uh, about using data from third-party sellers to help the Amazon's white label products, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think that's what this case is going to be about, which is a good thing. Now, a couple interesting tidbits on this. So there's some reference to where Amazon was testifying in front of Congress last year, almost uh, about 10 months ago now. And so I want to play a couple clips from that and, and highlight a couple things that they said. Several reports by leading economists and competition experts also suggest that the dominance of these firms is unlikely to be challenged by new rivals due to certain features that characterize digital markets. As these reports have found, the combination of high network effects, high switching costs, and the self-reinforcing advantages of data can result in a winner-take-all market that shield dominant firms from competitive threats. At the same time, there's growing consensus among venture capitalists and startups that there's a kill zone around Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple that prevents new startups from entering the market with innovative products and services to challenge these incumbents. And in recent years, the number of technology startup financings has dropped significantly from above 10,000 startup financings in 2015 to just above 6,000 in 2018, while the number of venture capital deals for investment beneath $1 million 
have also declined significantly. Does that sound familiar? We actually, we've actually talked about those exact same stats on the show as well. So that was kind of a nice overview, right? Um, but there's another clip here from Amazon's lawyer. Amazon sales online, U.S. retail shares growing at a faster rate of all companies or along the same level as other companies. So I know Walmart's put a lot of investment into their online platform. How do you compare compared to a Walmart or to other retail stores online? Thank you for your question. The third-party reports I've seen report Walmart growing at a faster rate than we are online. Okay, your, your written statement suggests that Amazon competes directly with other sellers serves competing sellers as a distributor and serves other sellers simply as an online marketplace platform through which they can reach their customers, which you had testified before. Uh, explain to me how that does or doesn't translate into whether Amazon is leveraging allegedly dominant retail market power into anti-competitive behavior against those other sellers. I think the clearest answer to that question is, is from the evidence showing how much we've invested to help those third-party sellers since we invited them into our store grow. They're now the majority of our sales and they're growing twice as fast. We think that's great for these small and medium-sized businesses and it's great for our customers. I think this is going to be the crux too. So Jeff Bezos is now, is actually going to testify in front of Congress. Um, I think very much so about this topic. I think that's going to be the crux to what Amazon's saying is, hey, look, these sellers are a majority of the stuff that we sell we support these sellers. Look at how much we've been supporting these sellers. Look at how much they compose a dominant force of all the share of what we sell on Amazon, which is a true statement, but it's not getting at the problem. And this uh, Mr. Stuby guy doesn't really do a very good job of, you got to ask these, these uh, lawyers very specific questions. If you, you leave them open-ended questions, they know how to spin it. So, um, you didn't ask very good questions, but this one, I think, represents what Amazon's going to come back and say. Now, okay, well, what would you say, uh, what should the EU say in response to that? Or what should these Congress people ask Jeff Bezos when he testifies? Now, here's the thing. Let's look at the top share of e-commerce in the United States. This is e-commerce, right? It's not marketplace sales. So now, it's a very good thing what Amazon is doing for third-party sellers on Amazon, it's a true statement. What Mr. Sutton, Amazon's lawyer, said is true. They are helping to build a lot of small businesses. They're helping a lot of small businesses reach customers that they would not have been able to reach otherwise. This is the whole platform value prop, right? This is why platforms, by and whole, are very good for society. And look, Amazon, as a whole, overall, is absolutely a positive force for society, for the economy, for small businesses. Don't get me wrong. Amazon absolutely creates a huge amount of value for both consumers and producers. What we're talking about here are the fringes. What we're talking about here is to have is are, are a small portion of the suppliers that get taken advantage of and, and allowing for protections for those sellers. Because right now there is no recourse for those sellers. And Stuby, the congressman, touched on this a little bit to say you have market dominance, Amazon. How much market dominance do you have? And Sutton, the lawyer, said, oh, well, I think Walmart's growing faster than us. Well, geez, I would hope Walmart's growing faster than you. But the question is, again, what is the base? Because if you have a base of 39% market share um, and, and Walmart's growing faster than you and they have 5% market share, well, that would make total sense 
but still it doesn't represent that you have seven or eight times the market share that Walmart does have online, right? So again, a nice little sidestep by Sutton. The, what these numbers don't show you is the marketplace market share. What do I mean by that? If I'm a third-party seller and I want to sell stuff online, how much market share does Amazon have of third-party sales? Well, we can kind of put some rough math around that. Amazon of last April 2019 shareholder letter had about $270 billion in total GMV in the United States. About 58% of that or so was from third-party sellers. So you do the math. Amazon has about $170 billion of third-party sales. It's probably a little bit more now. $170 to $200 billion of third-party sales. So I'm a third-party seller. That's a pie of $170 to $200 billion of stuff that Amazon is now allowing third-party sellers to fulfill, okay? Who would be the number two marketplace seller behind Amazon? It'd be eBay, not Walmart. This is e-commerce. So eBay's, all of eBay's sales is marketplace. eBay doesn't vertically integrate. They don't sell stuff on their own, right? As a reseller, they don't white label their own products. They're purely marketplace. So that 4.7% of e-commerce share, that is all marketplace third-party sales. The estimates for eBay is somewhere around maybe $30 billion, $35 billion in total GMV in the United States. You got to take out a little bit of that money for auto sales because it's a little bit different. I don't know. Let's call it $30 billion. So $170 billion for Amazon, number one. Let's call it 30, maybe $35 billion for eBay. 60% of eBay's sales, they've got about $90 billion in GMV. Um, about 60% of that is um, outside of the United States. So we're just trying to look at the US GMV here. And then you could look at Walmart. They talk about their overall e-commerce sales, but they don't disclose how much of e-commerce is actually comprised of third-party sellers. By our Applico internal estimates, it's maybe somewhere around 20 to $30 billion. So a little bit behind eBay, let's say, right? So now it trickles off real fast, right? Look at this. Home Depot, Apple, they don't have any third-party sales. Wayfair doesn't have third-party sales. Best Buy, Target, Costco, Macy's. Uh, I mean, maybe they have some, but it's so minuscule. It's really not even on the radar here. But now you need to look at our other marketplaces like the Real Real, which just went public, Farfetch public, but based in the UK, um, Goat and StockX sneaker marketplaces. So now you're looking at these niche kind of vertical specific marketplaces, Real Real and Farfetch and luxury goods, Goat and StockX and sneakers. Goat and StockX are maybe doing like a billion dollars in GMV. Farfetch and I think Farfetch is maybe doing $4 billion in best case scenario annually GMV. Um, Etsy doing about 4 or $5 billion in GMV. So anyway, you add that all up and you say, okay, between Walmart estimate, eBay, Etsy, Farfetch, real, real, you know, what's the US portion? StockX, GOAT. I don't know. Maybe there's $75 billion uh, of third party sales from marketplaces not called Amazon. So if, let's say there's a total market of $250 billion, let's say Amazon has $175 billion of third party sales, add the other $75 billion from everyone else. 
and then um you have uh you know amazon has the 175 the 175 of the 250 and what does that come out to be it's 70 percent. it's an approximation but it's well over 50 percent, right and i think it could actually be higher than 70 percent. it's we don't have the exact data right but this to me that's all you got to look at if you're the EU. Now, the numbers are going to be different because the EU is going to look at the European market and, and the numbers actually might even be more skewed against Amazon. So Amazon might actually have even more market dominance. Um, I haven't run the numbers for the EU, but you just look at the United States. If Amazon has 70% of every dollar, 70 cents of every dollar spent on third-party sellers in the United States goes through Amazon. And you're a third-party seller. Does Amazon have unfair market power over you? I mean, the answer is obvious. Absolutely, they do. Then the last piece of this argument is, why are third-party sellers considered customers as opposed to suppliers? And that really goes to the point of saying that, you know, who does Amazon make their money off of, right? A customer is someone that I'm charging. Customer is someone that you know, should be able to have choice about who they use, right? That's the whole thing, kind of consumer choice. And the customer is someone I'm making my money off of. So who does Amazon make their money off of? When, when a customer buys a product on Amazon that is sold by a third-party seller, who's paying Amazon? The customer, the consumer, or the third-party seller? So the answer is actually it's a third-party seller. Amazon's taking a 5, 10, 15, sometimes now 20% fee from the third-party seller. So quite literally, the third-party seller is Amazon's customer. That who is, that's who is paying Amazon. And then you say, okay, well, these people are paying Amazon, third-party sellers. Amazon has over 70% market share, right? That customer, those sellers have to go to Amazon because Amazon has 70% of that market, if not more. That's called monopoly. That's called customer relationship. And then you now layer in all these examples, which we've covered many times on the show, of different ways that these sellers get taken advantage of by Amazon. Now, this isn't a directive from Jeff Bezos to say, hey, go take advantage of these sellers. This is what happens when you have this huge machine called Amazon. You have mid level management and some upper level management. They have quotas, they have KPIs that they have to hit. And then they say, oh, well, hey, 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 colleague, if you could just give me this data or hey, seller, if you could just give me this purchase order, if I could just get access to that information, well, now I could make my product a little bit better. Well, now I could go buy these products from the end manufacturer and cut out the seller and I get a little bit more margin. That is the kind of bad behavior that we're talking about here. That is the kind of bad behavior that needs to be reined in. doesn't mean that you have to break up Amazon, but it does mean that you need to protect the third-party sellers to promote more competition amongst third-party sellers and amongst marketplace competitors. That's what we're talking about. The EU has a shot to pull this off. They really do have a shot. I think this is their best shot so far. We will see if they're able to thread the needle on this one. I, I hope they do. I hope they don't get distracted by trying to Bring the argument back around to the consumer. 
And I hope the DOJ, the U.S., is taking note here because it's actually unfortunate that the EU is is much more progressive in this area than the United States because it's much better for the United States to be able to set the precedent around how to propose decent regulation for tech monopolies. And my fear is that the EU does land the ball on this, but then when it comes to how to regulate and how to regulate properly, that they mess that part of it all up. But we'll see. One step at a time. Believe me, you will be the first to know about it from winner take all. Thanks very much for joining us. I will talk to you later this week.